time for people in those ministries who love our kids. Uh, and we're so proud of Bethany and Ann and Mike and all the hard work that they've put in uh, to making this happen. So it's uh, going to be beautiful. Give them an extra thumbs up when you get a chance. And also, on your way out today, um, look into the children's wing. There's some new artwork on the walls in there. And uh, you can't go in and mess it all up with your cooties, but if you'll just look from the lobby, you'll see some awesome artwork, and it looks great. So Esther chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. What are we talking about when we talk about mercy? We're just saying about it. It's a common Christian word. But what does it mean when we talk about mercy? A simple definition of mercy is this. Mercy is when we do not receive the bad thing or the punishment that we deserve. Mercy's alternative is grace. Grace is when we do receive a good thing we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't receive the bad thing that we do deserve. Here's an example of mercy from my life. Uh, I was 18 when I got pulled over for speeding for the first time. I wish I could say it was the last time. It has been a long time, but that wasn't the last time. Uh, 18 years old, get my first speeding ticket. I, I'm walking into my house that night knowing that my father, who is a good man, will inevitably destroy my face. And I, I'm terrified, I'm shaking, and I walk in and explain what happened. I was forced to because two of my brothers were with me and they were going to tell if I didn't. And my father's response was to kiss me on the forehead and to ask me, are you okay? And what did you learn? That's mercy. I deserved an exploded face. What I got instead was a kissed face and the kindness and compassion of my dad. That's mercy in action. H have you ever been walking through a particularly challenging season of life and thought that maybe, just maybe, God's punishing me? Maybe uh, the reason these things are going on is because I've sinned against God. Uh, we all would say, hey, I, I know where I fall short. There's things I could do better, I should do better. Sometimes we would even just tell ourselves, maybe there's some sin I'm committing that I don't even know about, and that's why God is being so harsh with me. That's why these days are so hard. But what if instead of viewing our trials as places of punishment, that we as God's people understood them as moments where we meet the mercy of God. If I looked at my crisis moment and I said the mercy of God is here, how would that change things? Would it change your life any to step into hardship knowing that you're going to meet the mercy of God? I think it could change things tremendously for us. It would change the way we respond. It would change the way we fear. It would change our level of panic. It would change our communion with the Lord to know that God is in this place and he is for me and he is with me changes everything. Now, today we're going to learn that lesson through the experiences of Mordecai and Esther. And the lesson they learn is not one they learn in the moment. Rather, I think it's one that they learn in retrospect. As they thought back over this time in their lives, and, and as the church throughout history has also revisited this time in their lives, we've learned this lesson in the same way. We look back at a moment in the life of God's people 
that could be defined by crisis and trial, and instead what we see today is the compassionate mercy of God on display. And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is to strengthen you by showing you the mercy of God that sustains his hurting people. Now, uh, we're going to read Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And in this passage, I want to show you three ways we meet with the mercy of God in our trials. So follow along with me as I read. We're just going to read to verse 18. Uh, the very end of the chapter, we'll go with next week's passage. So Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for, a beautiful young, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young, women, the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shasgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. 
He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. A couple of quick observations before we dive in. One is in the opening lines of chapter 2, we're once again met with the complete incompetence of King Ahasuerus. It's a strange scene as he begins to reminisce of Vashti and all the good times they had together, I guess. And then he's thinking, where has she gone? And why has she gone there? And what happened? It's as if his memory comes back as his sobriety returns. And how do his advisors respond? Real quick, they distract him with a plan for getting a new queen. Oh, hey, how about this, king? How about, rather than us owning up to the fact that we gave you bad advice the first time, how about we give you more bad advice? And this time, you just do a precursor to the bachelor or bachelorette. You just, whatever, you bring in all these young girls from the kingdom, and whichever one you think is the prettiest, that'll be the new queen. And Ahasuerus says, hey, that's great advice, and that's what he does. Now, if you're the king of Persia, and you're looking for a queen, what do you think some of the criteria are that you're going to look for in that queen candidate? You're, you're going to look for more than just, is she pretty? You might want someone who is politically allied in some way, or someone from a neighboring country that might benefit your country in some way. There's any number of things you might look for. You might even look for a person's character and be concerned about that. All Ahasuerus is concerned with is how she looks, how she pleases him. He is a vapid human being. Also, it's vital that we work hard to have a proper understanding, a proper view of what really is going on in the story of Esther. There are two extreme views that people often use to explain what's happening here in this story. One extreme is what we might call the Cinderella view that essentially treats this story as a little orphan girl's dream come true. Every day from her poverty, she looks to the palace and dreams, is there a king for me there? Something like that. Uh, we're used to those stories and, and we see them all the time. So that's the sort of narrative we might impose on the text. The other extreme would say this. It would say there's nothing Cinderella or dream come true about this story. In fact, this was like a living nightmare for Esther who was forced from her home, forced into a harem, and forced into the king's chambers. Now, the narrator of the story does not make it clear how we are to think about her situation. The narrator doesn't tell us how else Esther felt about her situation. And so, Here's how I approach it, and you can feel free to toss this in the trash if you want. Just a suggestion. I think there's truth to be found in both extremes. Uh, on the one hand, while I find the Cinderella view just far too cheesy to be realistic, there's a distinct possibility that for that culture, at that point in time, with their very different set of values, that a move from crushing poverty to the palace may have been viewed positively by Esther and Mordecai. We have to hold open that possibility. And while I find the nightmare scenario much more plausible, the story never describes Esther in turmoil. She has meaningful relationships in the palace. She has favor with people. She has influence at the highest ranks. So it's entirely possible that there are elements of truth in each view, and we have to be cautious about adding meaning to this story using a 21st century set of values. The story is wonderfully and infuriatingly ambiguous. The narrator does not 
uh, tell us what to think when it comes to these various scenes. But one thing that's unescapable in chapter 2 is that God's mercy is on display. It's never named. But as we look at the way God moves in and through the actions of the story, we see his mercy on behalf of his people. And there are three specific ways we experience the mercy of God in our trials as found here in Esther chapter 2. So if you're taking notes, the first way we experience the mercy of God in our trials is with his presence. God is merciful with his presence or by being present with us. In verse 5, we're introduced to Mordecai. We love Mordecai. Great, great character in this story. Uh, and we are told, first of all, that he is a Jewish man, that he is the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. The first thing we're told about him is not that he's Esther's cousin and that he adopts her. The very first thing we're told is his ethnicity and his genealogy. I think the story writer does that to put in front of us this detail that is most important to the rest of the story. He is a Jew. And we're given these names that make up part of his genealogy. These are not meant to be necessarily um, sequential names, but rather notable names in his genealogy. And there's a notable name that's missing. Scholars would tell us that all of these descriptions of Mordecai tell us that he is more than likely a descendant of King Saul. So he has the pedigree. He's got the name. He's got the identity. Now, verse 6 tells us a little more detail about Mordecai and the story of his people. Verse 6 tells us that Mordecai's people were taken captive by Babylon and sent into exile. And this is how he winds up living in Persia. In fact, the writer tells us three different times in verse 6 about the exile. Uses that verb exile or carried away three different times. I think that's an important detail to make. Now, on the screen you'll see uh, that the first verse, verse 6 in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, that's the version that I've read from this morning. This is how it's written there. It says that, that Mordecai had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. That verb exile is used three different times and you can see how it's used in the translation we read this morning. But I, I like the ESV translation better in this instance because it helps us see the repetition of that verb with greater clarity. He had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with King Jeconiah of King of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. In just this one little line, three different times the writer uses that verb. It's as if he's trying to communicate something to us. And I think what he's trying to help us understand is what a powerful and deep marker the exile was in the lives and the psyches of the Jewish people. When they were public with their Jewishness, it cost them dearly. The, being born in exile as Esther was and as many others were didn't make it any easier. You were still a Jew in a foreign land and your life was incredibly challenging. Now one of the biggest questions facing God's people during their exile was whether or not God would continue to care for them all the way away from Jerusalem, all the way away from the temple. Uh, they wanted to know, uh, would God still be their God? There's no temple, there's no priesthood, they're, they're living in a foreign land among foreign people and foreign customs. Uh, 
what will their relationship with God be like? And this question is especially poignant when you consider the reason why they're in exile. Why is it that God's people are in exile? The reason for their exile is their sin. Generation after generation of people rebelled against God and rejected their covenant with him and they worshiped false gods. So what did Israel deserve? Well, they deserve probably complete and total abandonment because they have marred the grace of God. They have repeatedly acted against him willfully. It's not some little accident that happens. They willfully, blatantly push back against the grace and the holiness of God. They deserve destruction. But what do they receive instead? They receive the undeniable mercy of God with them in their exile. God is not sitting in Jerusalem for 70 years waiting on them to return. He meets them in Babylon. He meets them in Persia. One way we see this in the Bible is through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet to God's people during the time of exile. And his ministry to God's people is marked by this repeated phrase. He would say this over and over again. This is what the Lord God says. For you King James fans, thus saith the Lord. Over a hundred times in the book of Ezekiel, that phrase is used. Thus saith the Lord. So here you are now with an address in exile, and God is speaking to you, giving you comfort and direction and hope and promises and holiness. Even in exile, thus saith the Lord. Here's a reminder of the mercy of God present with his people who are broken by all their circumstances. What does this tell us except that we are never beyond the presence of God? So many times I, I think people assume that we will only find God in the most holy and sacred of places. But in the Bible, God is present with his people in slavery. He's present when they're pursued by armies. He's present when they are in Jerusalem or Babylon or Persia or Rome. He is the God who is there. He does not leave you or abandon you. Some of the last words Jesus said to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the presence of God is not merely an omnipresence, which that's a marvelous doctrine. It is a manifest presence. If he is present as a mere observer, there's not much that's helpful there. But if he's present as an actor, as a speaker, as God who is moving with his people and guiding us, that's where things make the big difference. So how does God manifest his presence among us? It may not be a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, but it certainly is by his speaking word. He's present with us in that he hears and responds to our prayers. He's present with us in that he brings resources to our aid when we need them. He's present with us in that the things we pray against his will, he does not do, but instead he continues to guide us into his good and perfect will. He's present with us through the words of brothers and sisters that encourage us and strengthen us when our knees are weak. He's with us in so very many manifest ways. He's not God the observer, he is God the actor, he is God with us, and that makes all the difference. He's merciful to us by his 
nearness by his presence with us in our trials. How else do we experience the mercy of God in our hardship? Second, God is merciful with his patience. Merciful with his presence. He's merciful with his patience. I require a great deal of patience from God and all human beings who know me. God is patient with his flawed children. Now, uh, we're introduced to Esther here in the middle of the chapter, and she is included in the roundup of young women from around the empire. We're given detailed descriptions of what life in the harem was like and what beauty treatments the women received. It's all really fascinating. And Esther made an impression on everyone she met. I don't think that's a detail we should just gloss over. Um, Esther meets with the favor of people, whether it's Haggai, the one who's in charge of the women, or it's the servants, whoever it is, everywhere Esther goes, she has the favor of people. Uh, if you were to go back and read the book of Daniel, you'll find that Daniel does the same thing. He also meets with the favor of people, and that's explicitly the hand of God at work in and through Daniel. I think it's the same also for Esther here as well. Now, verse 10 contains what I think is the most pivotal piece of information in all of chapter 2. And it says this. It says, Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. How would Esther have hidden her Jewish identity? Well, I mean, for sure, she wouldn't have just offered it up. She would have kept quiet about it. But what's more, she would have hidden her Jewish identity by not observing regular Jewish religious practices. She didn't eat, rest, or maintain her purity as a Jewish person would. Why is it that Esther would hide her Jewish identity? Well, we know that Mordecai told her to hide it, and so she obeys him. But we're not told why Mordecai felt it was important or why Esther felt this was important. We're left with just a few options that we can guess at. It could be that by revealing her Jewishness, she could be threatening her own safety. The problem with this is there's outside of the, the encounter with Haman and the edict from the king, when she steps into the palace, there doesn't seem to be great animosity towards Jewish people in the palace or in the kingdom period. It could be that she's hiding her Jewishness because otherwise she might be kicked out of the harem and sent back to her poverty. So it's an act of self-preservation in that way. But again, the narrator just doesn't give us any insight to know. Now, throughout history, people of faith have always been faced with this very same tension, struggling with whether to be faithful to our core identity as followers of Christ, as people of God, or whether to capitulate to the pressures and the cultural expectations of society around us. In fact, every Christian like Esther finds himself or herself in situations where you have to choose between doing what is right or doing what is culturally acceptable, between acting with integrity and compromising in order to seize an opportunity, between living consistently out of your identity in Christ or, or living for whatever is desirable according to the surrounding cultural climate. There are ways you can deny God and find great favor with the world around you. And so what will you do with your Christian identity? What will you do with the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ blood bought and held by him this is a hard question 
that every high schooler has to encounter? How will you carry your Christian identity in a school where you are largely alone? We have an incredible group of students that make up our youth group, and so few of them have Christian friends in their own schools. We have nearly 30 schools represented in our youth group. It's astounding how many schools are represented there. And so many of our students have their church friends and they have their school friends and there's not a lot of overlap. And so how can I have more friends? How can I have more influence? How can I just, how can I just be invisible and not stick out and not be an object of scorn and ridicule? What will I do with my Christian identity? College students face this in a profound way. Five minutes on a secular campus and you are confronted with every anti-Christian worldview. Where it's not just frowned upon to be a Christian, where it is acted against to be a Christian and to identify as a follower of Christ is immediately to lump yourself into so many negative labels. So what will you do as a Christian who's in college How will you maintain your identity? I think so many of those same pressures face single adults. So many of those same pressures face businesswomen and businessmen. There are ample opportunities for us to capitulate our identity in Christ for the sake of a benefit the culture might offer to us. So does Esther make a right choice or a wrong choice? At the end of the day, it's hard for us to avoid, I think, the most obvious reading of the text, no matter how morally disappointing it is. I think Esther was a Jewish girl who did not follow the dietary laws or observe the Sabbath, and she did not maintain her purity. The simple fact is that when she found herself in a hard place, she did not resist. She compromised. I know that's a complicated matter, very complicated. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but there are some conclusions perhaps we can draw with confidence. Perhaps the trouble, though, for us is not so much with the Bible, but with our expectations of it. You see, Scripture is not a chronicle of great moral examples, people who do everything right and never do anything wrong. Scripture is account after account of flawed people whom God is mercifully patient with. Esther's effective in her role as a deliverer, not because she is sinlessly perfect, but because God is perfectly patient in all of her flaws to still use her, to move forward his will with Esther as a key player. So it's okay for us to admit that Esther was flawed because we are also. Esther was flawed. God didn't cast her away. And Moses and Aaron and Gideon and David and Peter, the Bible is filled with flawed people who met the patient mercy of God. And so have you. Now, one of the surest lies that the enemy will use to hurt a believer is to convince you that your sin makes you utterly useless to God. He'll highlight the bad you've done and the good you haven't done, and and he'll have you constantly compare yourself to others. It's a comparison that you'll always lose. He is convincing, and his lies lead to a sort of spiritual paralysis. But this is where God's people Fight back with Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's people are not defined by our sin. We are defined by our Savior who conquered our sin. 
Look, there's no doubt our sanctification is ongoing. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. It's going to be gross. We're still growing in our holiness. But there's no question about our standing with God and his readiness to use flawed people. Esther's success is not based on her perfection, but on the merciful patience of God. And that's what we meet also in our hardship and our trials. When we respond in ways that are unbecoming of people of faith, our God is patient, our God is merciful, and he looks on us with all our flaws, and he loves you. He always has. You never diminish the love of the Father for you. So where do we meet God's mercy? We meet it in his presence, and we meet it in his patience. And finally, God is merciful with his sovereignty. You probably thought there'd be another P word there, but I flipped it on you, didn't I? God's merciful with his sovereignty. So our passage closes with Esther being elected as queen. And Ahasuerus is so happy, he says, hey, no taxes. And hey, here's gifts for everybody. And if this were just a Cinderella story, this would be the end of it. But it's not, and we know why this is not the end of the story, right? We do. I, I hope you've read this book already. And if not, I want to challenge you to read it in the week ahead. It, if you were to sit down without distraction, you could have this knocked out easily in under an hour. It's not a long story. Uh, and it would help you to know what's coming in order to interact with where we are from Sunday to Sunday. And so that's, what's, that's a great advantage, I think, to us as readers is when we walk through the story of Esther, we do so from a divine perspective. What I mean is uh, we know how the story ends. We know all the different steps in between. Our perspective is not from within the story, but from above the story. And so when Esther gets the crown, we know with a godlike knowledge, so to speak, we know what that means and why it's a big deal. Ahasuerus is celebrating. He's so pumped up. He has a really pretty queen now. And we say, you have no idea what you've done, buddy. You've got no clue who you have given that crown to. You have no idea. She is so much more than just a pretty face. This young woman's going to do amazing things in the power of God for the people of God. Ahasuerus, you have no clue what you've put the deliverer in the exact position that she needs to be in. And that's not an accident. Who makes that happen? God does. Because he knows what's coming in the story. He knows the threat to his people. And he knows, here's how I'm going to resolve this. I'll take this girl from abject poverty and loss and oppression, and I will give her a crown, and she's going to be my vessel to deliver my people. He puts her in position intentionally. This is the sovereignty of God at work. The king didn't know the significance. Esther didn't know the significance. Mordecai didn't know that a threat was coming. All they know is, hey, Esther's the queen now, and that makes life really weird for everyone. But isn't that just like God? To operate with this subversive sovereignty. We've talked before about the sneaky sovereignty of God. He doesn't telegraph it. He, he doesn't inform us first. Hey, here's, here's the next eight steps I'm going to take, just so you know. He just does the thing. And he's not a reactionary God who, who acts in response to crisis. He is the God who acts before the crisis has come. Before we know there's a threat, before we know things are going to be intense, God has already put the pieces in place for our deliverance. Your God is 
is in control. Do you struggle to believe that? I don't struggle to believe it as long as life is stable. But, but when life is turned upside down, I struggle. Maybe you do too. See, I, I want a visible sovereignty. I, I want to be informed of what the sovereign one is doing. I want a transparent sovereignty. What I want is for God to be sovereign in the way that I tell him to be sovereign. So what we do so often is, is we blame God for the knowledge we lack and we struggle to trust the knowledge he has. And that's why we should often visit Esther's coronation and be reminded of God's merciful, subversive control. The queen gets a crown and deliverance is already in progress. Did you know that every year we celebrate the subversive sovereignty of God and we're about to do it again. Did you know that? Once upon a time, Caesar Augustus sat on the throne of the Roman Empire and God's people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But Luke tells us a baby was born in Bethlehem and God's redemptive plan marches forward. His subversive sovereignty is on display all the time. Now, if you're not a Christian, it is absolutely vital that you get this idea in your head, that you understand this concept. That you see, Esther's put in place before anyone knows there's a problem. That God just acts that way. That's the way he always moves. And, and just as he put Esther in place to solve a problem before anyone knew there was a problem, so also God put someone in place to solve your problem before you even knew you had a problem. And what's your problem? Your problem is sin. That's the same problem we all have. And, and that sin creates, requires a punishment. Our sin is a sin against God. It's egregious sin. It's not small, light, fluffy sin. It is horrific rebellion against the God who created us and the God who is eternally, magnificently, gloriously holy. And so the only fitting reaction to that sin is death, our death. You might expect God to hate sinners and to want to destroy them, but Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while you were still a sinner, before you were even aware you were a sinner, before you were even aware your sin caused problems between you and God, before you knew anything, God the Father sent God the Son. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem named Mary. He is the God-man. Jesus Christ is the only one who meets the requirements to deal with our sin effectively. And so because he is the sinless son of God and because he loves you, he died in your place for your sin long before you even knew you needed a savior. That's what love does. He died in your place on the cross when he hung on the cross, he took all of God's wrath against your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that means he's got an invitation to give to you. When he says, believe in me and you'll have eternal life, that's a true promise. And because he loves you, he invites you to turn from your sin and your brokenness and to put your whole life in him, to follow him with everything. 
And when you do, he changes your life forever. He saves you. He forgives you. You're a new creation. You're his child forever and ever. God has employed his subversive sovereignty to save you because he loves you. And the invitation to you today is that you would trust Christ as your Savior. If you say no to that, what will you do with your sin? If you say no to God's deliverer that he's provided, how will you deliver yourself? You may try, and you may have ideas, and you may just dole the reality in various ways, but God has provided a deliverer for you. Do not let another day go by that you try to save yourself. If you could have done it, you would have done it already, but we can't. That's why we need Jesus, and he loves you so much. And Christian, you've trusted Christ for your salvation. Will you also trust him for your deliverance? God's sovereignty never fails. In Esther's coronation, we're reminded of how powerful and perfect God is. So how do we experience God's mercy in our distress? We experience his mercy by his presence and by his patience and by his sovereignty. How often do we ignore those realities? How often does crisis just grip us by the face and take every ounce of thought and energy we have and keep us from really seeing God present, patient, sovereign in our hardship? Do you become a practical atheist when you react to the trials in your life? Well, you don't have to. These beautiful truths should steady us and comfort us. And so how can you go from ignoring the mercy of God to resting in the mercy of God? Here's two very quick practical tips, things you can do this week that will help you experience the mercy of God in your trial. Number one is this. Ask someone to pray for you. Go to a Christian friend and open up a bit and share your burden with them and trust them to carry you in prayer. There is nothing greater a brother or sister in Christ can do for you than pray for you. Nothing greater. They will take your name to the Father. They will plead your case. They will act on your behalf. You're doing the same thing, and maybe in your weakness you can't, but this brother or sister will do that. They will pray for you, and they will pray specific prayers that you tell them. Don't just say pray for resolution. Say pray that I would trust the Lord. Pray that my holiness would be developed. Pray that I would have a stronger back to endure. Trust your brothers and sisters to pray for you. Now you could text the word pray to that number that we show you every Sunday. Or you just grab someone or you call someone today and say, hey, I need you to listen and I, I need you to pray for me. And they'll do it. Paul repeatedly asked the churches he wrote letters to to pray for him. At the end of the book of Romans, he tells them, share in my burden by praying for me. Ask someone to pray for you. A second way you can see the mercy of God is by targeting joy every day. I don't mean paint on a happy face. I mean as much as you can, live your life and pursue the joy of the Lord. In grief or disorientation, we forget to live, we forget to sleep, we forget to eat, we forget to breathe, we forget to be joyful. And certainly there are seasons of life where our grief may be all-consuming, but the Christian life is not exclusively lament. God's goodness breaks through perhaps only a little at a time and empowers us to live our lives and experience joy again. So 
How will you trust in the Lord and let his joy dictate your day-to-day choices? Maybe today all you've got in you is, is just the choice to be at church with your brothers and sisters. Look what you've done and look how God's met you in this moment. Don't treat it like such a small thing. It's a big deal. Or maybe you show your trust in the Lord through a time of personal worship or Bible reading and journaling. Maybe you show your trust in the Lord just by taking a walk and communing with Him in nature, enjoying the sun and the wind and what He's given us in beautiful trees. Maybe you leave your house for a while to sit with a friend or to serve someone in need. There's any number of ways, small and big, that you might choose to live in the joy of the Lord today. In Nehemiah 8, chapter 10, God's embattled people were reminded to eat and drink for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We meet with the mercy of God and he enables us to live and eat and sleep and breathe and know joy once again because he's present and he's patient and he's sovereign. You're not alone, God is present. And you're not cast out, God is patient. And you're not going to be crushed, God is sovereign. So may you find comfort and strength in the mercy of God this day. Let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see your mercy uh, against the backdrop of hardship. And I know what, what I speak of today is not cliche. Lord, I pray your strength, your joy would be given to my brothers and sisters so that this day they would know the difference that your presence and your patience and your sovereignty is making in their lives. God, your sovereignty is such a gift to your children and you know that in our weakness it is hard for us to trust it. When we don't have the answers and we, we lack knowledge and we don't know what's next and we just want what was, So, Lord, this day, help us to rest in you. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They've heard the gospel today. Lord, open their hearts to believe in you so that you could deal with their sin once and for all and they could know life everlasting as your child. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.